you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn in them to Revelation chapter 19. So now we come to the great crescendo of the book of Revelation. And not just of the book of Revelation, but of time itself. Before Jesus came to earth, historians record time B.C., before Christ. And after him, it is Anno Domini, year of our Lord. So time was split in two at the first advent of Christ. And now time itself will end at the second advent of Christ. In this book, John has been receiving visions of how things will come to an end. And so we, we know now and we see now where we are. We're at the end of all of this. The tribulation has passed the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, the seven bowl judgments. And my, my reading of the book of Revelation is that for us that is still to come. But in the vision of Revelation, as we make our way through it, that is now past. And so again, according to how I've been approaching Revelation, how we've been approaching it in here, the church has gone through the Revelation, the tribulation at this point, and now we're on the other side of it, and the church has not gone through the tribulation without scars. Many have been martyred during the tribulation, especially as the world turns against the church, and many are martyred in that time as the world favors the beast and the great prostitute Babylon. But now that time of tribulation is gone, and Christ the Lord is poised to return Last week, we looked at verses 6 through 10 of this book, which portrayed our reunion with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But that which we read about last week takes place after that which we will read about this morning. And so as we said last week, that was a telescoping forward to the, to the final state as we got a picture of how we will be reunited with our King and we will enjoy uninterrupted fellowship with Him in glory. But now, with this morning's text, we will telescope back to that which must take place before the marriage supper of the Lamb, namely the return of Jesus Christ in glory. This church is our blessed hope. This is our great hope, the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our King in all of His glory. That's what this passage is about. So let's read Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Let's pray. Our God and King, we all know this story. Father, as we unpack this passage, may you make the uncommon as glorious as it is in reality. And Father, as as we see this glorious scene unfold, may, may we be moved and compelled to live in light of that. In light of the fact that it is true and that it is only a matter of time before this happens. We pray for those among us who have not placed their faith in Christ. Lord, use this passage to bring them shuddering to their knees in dread of the reality of facing you, O Lord God, without a Redeemer. And Father, may we be encouraged to cling tightly to the blessed hope of your son's return. We thank you for this good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage has two parts. In verses 11 through 16, we see the return of the king. And and John describes what he sees. We see the appearance of the king and what he looks like. And we, we see detailed for us the actions of the king, what he does. And then in verses 17 through 21, we have described for us the battle of Armageddon, the build up to it, the gathering of the combatants, and the incredibly anticlimactic war itself. And the capturing of those opposed to Christ in the church. So let's look first at the return of the king. The return of the king. And by the way, there's no, 
There's no PowerPoint this morning. There's, there's two points, the return of the king and the battle. This is, this is one of those passages that we need to just sit back and hear God teach us and then determine to live this life in light of that. So first, the return of the king. John sees heaven opened, and so that tells us that this, this is a new part of the vision, but something different is going on here. This is not just another part of the vision in Revelation. Now heaven is opened as if God himself were to burst forth onto earth, which is exactly what he's going to describe. As John describes what he sees in this passage, he's drawing very heavily from Old Testament imagery, particularly the great warrior avenger of Isaiah 63. And the defeat of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. But he's also drawing on imagery from uh, what we know of Roman triumphant procession. That when a Roman warrior king would return home after victory in battle, after, after victory in a conquest, these are the sorts of things that you would see white horses, diadems, and crowns, names and titles, and military imagery. These are all drawn from that as well. And all of this is painting a picture for us of a great warrior king coming to earth. This is the same Jesus that was born as a babe in Bethlehem. This is the same Jesus that walked throughout Galilee in the streets of Jerusalem, healing people and preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the same Jesus who voluntarily went to the cross for sinners like you and I to rescue us back to himself through faith in Jesus. And now this same Jesus is returning as the warrior king. So listen as John describes his appearance. We'll get to the actions in a moment, but first the appearance of the king. John sees a white horse. So this is a warrior, this is a war horse. And uh, this is an indication that a great warrior is about to burst onto the scenes. The one who's seated on this war horse is called faithful and true. Now, I don't know if you noticed it as we read through here, but there's something interesting going on here with the names of Jesus. There are four names for Jesus here, three that are known, one that is hidden. And here, we're, we're going to talk about the names in just a moment, but, but here he's called Faithful and True. That lets the reader know that Jesus is going to be faithful to God and his promises and that he can be counted on to vindicate the bride of Christ, the church, with his truth. In verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. We saw a similar picture of Jesus in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 in those throne room visions. We saw the, the flame of fire. That was, that was his eyes. I can't help but wonder if Tolkien had these eyes of, of flame of fire in mind when he came up with the character Sauron. Like Sauron in Lord of the Rings, the, the, that 
eye is, a, is an all-seeing eye. It sees everything. That's what this refers to. He sees everything. He misses nothing. He sees every evil that opposes him and rejects him. Also in verse 12, on his head are many diadems. These are crowns. They, they signify sovereign rule and authority. And, and by the way, they're unlimited here. We're told that there are many diadems. They're unlimited as opposed to the, the, the diadems that were on the dragon and the beast. They were limited in number, but these are not. He has unlimited sovereign rule and authority. At the end of verse 12, he also has a name written that nobody knows but himself. More about that in just a moment. In verse 13, he is, his clothes, he's clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood. And this signals that he's coming in judgment. Here we see some of the imagery from the Old Testament. In Isaiah 63, we're told about this, this warrior avenger who comes from Edom. Edom in the Old Testament is, is a symbolic reference for all of Israel's enemies throughout the Old Testament. And in Isaiah 63, there's a, there's a great avenger that comes from Edom to Israel to rescue Israel. And his garments are, are, are crimson like the robe here that is dipped in blood. Verse 13 also gives us another name by which he is called. This time is, he's called the Word of God, which of course reminds us of the gospel that this same John wrote. His first chapter, first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here Jesus is called the Word of God. And then in verse 14, we see that he is followed by the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, he says, who are also on white horses of their own. This army from heaven certainly includes the heavenly host, the angelic warriors that are coming with him, but there's also indication that perhaps the church, the bride of Christ, or at least the bride that is alive at this time, is also in this army. We'll see that in just a moment. In verse 15, there's a sharp sword that comes from his mouth to strike down the nations, just like the picture of Jesus that we saw at the beginning of of Revelation in chapter 1. And this is indication here and symbolic of the power and the effectiveness of Jesus' spoken words. And then lastly, we're told in verse 16 of, a, of yet another name, this one written on his robe and on his thigh. And it is the Old Testament title for God, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what, what is the deal with all of the names here? Two of them he's called by, two of them are written. He's called by the name faithful and true in verse 11 and the name the word of God in verse 13. And then two, he, two names are written there in verse 16, king of kings and lord of lords, but also in verse 12, a name that no one knows but himself. So what's going on there? Well, scholar Tom Schreiner points out that in the, in the ancient world, to know someone's name is to have control over them. If you know their name, you can 
control that person. Thus, in Genesis 32, the one that wrestles with Jacob, he doesn't give him his name, right? Similarly, also in uh, Judges chapter 13, the, the angel of the Lord does not tell Samson, his, uh, Samson's parents, his name, only that it was wonderful because no one control, can control him. And so here, no one is able to control or manipulate the one who sits on the white horse because he has a name that no one knows. And yet, he has three other names that we do know because they're given to us. So Schreiner goes on to suggest that, that this is to communicate something about the, both the, the eminence of Christ, that, that he's with us and we can know him, but also the transcendence of Christ, that he's not like us, that he's apart from us. And there's a sense in which he cannot be fully known. Schreiner concludes Jesus is both eminent and transcendent. He is both near to us, but also hidden from us. God can be known to us through Jesus Christ, but we do not know him exhaustively or fully. So what we have in this description of the appearance of the king, he's a mighty warrior. He's a mighty warrior returning not from battle, but returning for battle. He sees everything with his eyes of fire. He's got sovereign rule and authority that are unlimited. He's got power in the words of his mouth, and he's got an army of heaven in tow. It's quite a description of his appearance. Now, what does he do? What are the actions of the king? Well, back in verse 11, we saw that he comes to, to judge and make war. So he, he doesn't come to suffer and die this time. He comes to make war and he comes to bring judgment. And this judgment that he brings in verse 15 will involve him striking down the nations with the sword that comes out of his mouth. And then we're told also in verse 15 that he will rule them with a rod of iron. And perhaps most vivid of all there in verse 16, that he will tread the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. And so he's coming to deliver judgment. He's coming to set all things right that are wrong. He's coming to make all things right in the world according to his sovereign and divine will and purpose. All throughout the scriptures, the prophets and the apostles speak of this day. In the Old Testament, the prophets speak of one king who will return and will sit on the throne of King David, and that his reign will be forever. Over and over again, the prophets point of that day to come. In the New Testament, the apostles and the other New Testament writers write about the perusia, the, the coming of the Lord. And they write about the epiphania, the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just listen to a sampling of some of what they say. James writes in James 5, 7 through 8, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
Peter writes about it in 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This same John writes in his first letter, 1 John 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And then at the end of his life, the Apostle Paul writes to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. Now, before we move on to cover the battle of Armageddon in the closing verses of chapter 19, I want us to look at something that's not here. I want us to look at something that happens, I believe at this point, but it's not here. What in the world am I talking about? Well, when we began our study of Revelation, we talked about how there are a variety of views and interpretations on this book. And, and, and most of these views differ primarily on the issue of the millennium. And we'll get to that in chapter 20. That's coming up next. When we talk about the thousand-year reign of Christ and whether or not that happens or when it happens and all of that. But these views also differ, differ in how they understand a very well-known and popularized event that involves the church in the end. We all know what I'm talking about, right? The rapture. Now, what is the rapture? Well, the word rapture, oddly, is not found in your English Bibles. You're not going to find it there. It comes from a Latin word that means caught up. And that comes from a phrase that we find in 1 Thessalonians 4. You can read that on your own time. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, which is primarily where we turn to to read about what is called commonly the rapture. It says there that we will be caught up, that we who remain will be caught up together with the Lord. The Latin word for that means rapture. So we should note, though, that there is no reference, no explicit reference, I would say, in Revelation about the rapture. And I just find that odd. I just find that surprising. In a book that tells us so much about what's going to happen in the end, even if you don't have a futurist view of the book of Revelation, certainly the second coming of Christ is in the future. And so a book that tells us so much about that doesn't even mention this most popular of events in the end times. I just find that interesting. Some see a possible reference to it in a couple of places. One is back in uh, chapter 3 um, in the letters to the churches when, when Jesus promises the church in Philadelphia that he intends to keep them from the hour of trial that is coming on the earth to try those who dwell on the earth. 
But the idea of keeping those from the trial can mean something else. So, so some will say that, that what's meant there is that Jesus is keeping them from that hour of trial by removing them. But there's another way of understanding that. It could be that the idea of keeping them from the hour of trial could be understood as the Lord keeping them safe through the revelation, not from the revelation. This very same word is found in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 27, when James writes, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself from being stained by the world. In other words, to keep oneself from the world. Did he mean that we must be removed from the world to be unstained? No. But we are kept in the world, but not of it. It's the very same word that we find in Revelation 3.10. Others see a possible reference to it in the passage that we looked at last week about the marriage supper of the Lamb. That that's a picture of the church, and it wasn't a, a, a telescoping forward. It was something that was occurring while this other stuff was happening. But I, I find, just frankly, I find that those are a stretch in reading something into the text rather than reading something from the text. And so if the rapture is a real event, and I believe that it is, then we're left to piece the puzzle together ourselves as to when it happens and what it is based on other things that we know about apocalyptic prophetic literature. There really are three main camps when it comes to the rapture and its timing. Some just flat, flatly deny it. But I think there's too much in 1 Thessalonians 4 and also, by the way, 1 Corinthians 15, the end of that chapter, for us to simply ignore it. And so I don't find that argument convincing. Others say that it happens before the time of the tribulation. And so Jesus, in essence, in that view, returns twice. Once to collect the church, and then once again at his second coming. Others say that the rapture occurs after the tribulation, at the same time as the second coming itself. And so in that view, there's only one return of Christ. I'll put my cards on the table and tell you that I would affirm the latter of those two options. I simply don't find sufficient biblical evidence for a secret return of Christ before the tribulation, where the church is gathered to Jesus and returns back to heaven during the tribulation and then comes back to earth again after the tribulation with the church in tow to set up his earthly kingdom. Now, that is the most prevalent and the most popular uh, theological interpretation of the rapture in evangelical circles today but in terms of theological history that is also the most recent interpretation way of interpreting the rapture for most who hold to that view uh, probably the primary reason for understanding a pre-tribulation rapture is the companion belief that the church does not go through the time of tribulation that's described in the book of revelation They'll say that after chapter 3 and the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, that the church is not mentioned at all until the return of Christ here in chapter 19. And so they'll say, hey, they're not there for that. Another reason is the belief that the tribulation is primarily about God's wrath 
And because the church is, does not endure wrath from God, because it's the church, it's the bride of Christ, so it just makes sense that the church is not here to experience that wrath during the tribulation. But to me, it's just me, and we're, it's, it's okay to disagree. It's okay to disagree and, and have a different opinion than one of your pastors. But to me, to say that the church is no longer on earth simply because she's not mentioned for several chapters, it's just an argument from silence. It doesn't actually say that she's been removed. We just don't hear from her. And so it's an argument from silence. In his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, in my estimation, Jesus is clearly telling his disciples to be ready for the coming hard times, the coming tribulation. And he warns his disciples about how hard it's going to be and that many of them will die during it. And while I do agree that God's wrath is reserved for the unbelieving world and those who reject Christ and reject the gospel, the tribulation is not only about God pouring out his wrath on an unbelieving world. It's also about that unbelieving world turning on the church during that time with great violence and hostility to where many in the church will be martyred as a result of that unbelieving world turning on her. The primary text where we read about the, the rapture, again, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, 1 Corinthians 15, the end of that chapter, 50 through 55 or so. And in my view, both of those texts are teaching about the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead and not a secret return for the church during that time. That's what they're teaching. Also in the middle of 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, that passage about the rapture, uh, verse 15 there in 1 Thessalonians 4, refers to the coming of the Lord. And it uses that very same word that we've said so often return, uh, is associated with the second coming of Christ, the perusia of the Lord. And everywhere else that we see that word used in that very same book of 1 Thessalonians, it refers unambiguously to the second coming of Christ. So based on all of this, I personally, I don't find sufficient evidence for a secret return of Christ before the tribulation that is separate from the, the perusia, the coming of the Lord. I believe that the, the blessed hope of the church is not the rapture, but the return of Christ in glory at his second coming. So does that mean that I reject the idea of a rapture? No, it doesn't. It just means that my understanding of the rapture is perhaps significantly different than what popular Christianity typically teaches. The popular pre-tribulation rapture view teaches that Christ will return for the church and take the church back up to heaven and the church will escape the tribulation and stay in heaven during those seven years. And then after the tribulation, the, when Christ returns, he will bring the church with her and set up his kingdom. So according to that view, in my estimation, then, the hope of the church is not the second coming of Christ, but is the rapture of the church. That's why it's so popular. It's the rapture of the church that's the hope in that view, because that's how the church escapes the coming tribulation, while he keeps them with him in heaven. Conversely, 
the view that I hold to asserts that the, the events that we see described in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 are simultaneous to the second coming of Christ. So instead of two returns, one to get the church and then one to set up the kingdom, I hold to a view that says there is one return of Christ, that Jesus Christ returns in glory, and when he does, the church goes to meet him, and then we're part of that army that comes down with him, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, on white horses of our own. In that 1 Thessalonians 4 passage, it says that we, the church, at that time, will meet the Lord in the air. Now that word for meet is only found two other places in the New Testament. First, in Matthew chapter 25, in the parable of the bridegroom and the ten virgins, where the virgins go out and meet the groom and then welcome him back to the wedding feast. The other place is in Acts chapter 28, where Paul's going to Rome, and before he gets there, the Roman believers go out to the form of Appios, and they meet Paul, They greet him and they welcome him. They walk with him back into Rome. In both of those instances, the action of meeting involves going out to meet someone and then walking with them back, welcoming back an honored guest. We also see the same word used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. The very same Greek word is used in multiple places and in comparable ways. In secular uses of this word, in secular Greek literature, the word is often used to refer to delegates who would go out and meet a dignitary outside the village when they come to to visit and then walk with them in celebration as they come into the town itself. And so the way I understand the rapture is that when Jesus returns after the tribulation, the church will meet up with him Maybe literally in the air, air, maybe that's figurative, but we'll meet up with the Lord Jesus and then we'll be part of this army in verse 14 that is arrayed for battle with him. But however it works out, can we just agree that the rapture is one of those, it's not primary, it's not a primary doctrine, it's at least secondary, probably a tertiary importance. And so it's certainly not one of those doctrines over which we should divide so there's plenty of grace for opposing views on this event. That's just how I read it. Now that little bit of theological triage just prepares us for the first few verses of chapter 20 that we're going to get to next, right? So that bit about uh, how we understand the rapture is just a, is just a warm-up for what's to come because it's going to get even bumpier from here on out, all right? So let's return to our text and finish up chapter 19. We've covered John's appearance, uh, uh, his description of the appearance of the return of the king and, and the actions of the king. And so now we come to the battle of Armageddon. This is the great day of the Lord that the prophets speak of in the Old Testament. In verses 17 and 18, an angel calls out to the birds of the air, And tells them to prepare for a feast. The background here is Ezekiel 39. Where Gog and Magog are prophesied to be destroyed. This feast that the angel calls the birds to prepare prepare for. Stands in stark contrast to the feast that we just read about. In the previous verses in chapter 19. The marriage supper of the Lamb. 
But here, this feast is the flesh of man. The angel says, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, captains, mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Jesus is coming. The armies of heaven are with him. And the angel announces to those who are gathered to do battle against Jesus and the armies of heaven that they will all be put down, that they will be totally and completely wiped out. That's his prophetic word from this angel. So in verse 19, in fulfillment of this angel's prophetic announcement to the birds of the air, the beast and the kings of the earth and the great armies that are with them gathered to battle against the one on the white horse and his army. And so the stage is set for this epic battle, this battle to end all battles, except the epic battle never happens. It's a non-event. The next thing that we read is that the beast and the false prophet with him are captured and thrown alive into the lake of fire. And then in verse 21, the rest, the rest, he says, which I believe are are, are the rest of the armies that are, are gathered there with the kings of the earth and the beast who are gathered to fight against Jesus, the rest of them that are left, he says, are slain by the sword that comes from Jesus' mouth. And then the angel's prophecy is fulfilled. And the birds gorge themselves on their flesh. The main idea, these last five verses of chapter 19, is that when Christ returns, uh, the kings of the earth and the armies that are with them, these massive armies that are gathered to do battle against Christ and the armies of heaven, Christ will wipe them out. It will not be the epic battle that Hollywood likes to depict of Armageddon. It will be a non-event. It'll be over in a moment. And there's no indication, by the way, that we, the church, or the church that is there at that time, even lifts a finger. We don't even engage in this battle. Instead, we're observers as our king Battles in our place, just as he always has, just as he did at Calvary, except this time the enemy will be forever obliterated, forever. In thinking about this passage, in thinking about preaching this passage, I felt a bit like I sometimes do at Christmas and Easter. On those occasions, everyone knows the story. Everyone knows the story. And the story, while incredible, is also very common. At Christmas, Jesus is born. At Easter, Jesus is risen. So a lot of times pastors feel this obligation, this self-imposed pressure to make that which is common seem new and exciting and unique and powerful as if the incarnation of God could be any more grand right as if the resurrection of Jesus Christ could be any more magnificent but I felt the same kind of 
self-imposed pressure here. We all know Jesus is coming back. We talk of it often. We know the story. This is a, a fundamental doctrine and story of the Christian faith. And so this, there's this weird kind of self-imposed pressure to make that which is common seem uncommon and unique and new and exciting. As if the return of Jesus Christ in glory could be any more glorious. Church, this is our blessed hope. This is the hope to which we hold. Our King, He's coming back. He's returning. And ours is simply to live today in light of that reality. As if it were true, because it is. This truth ought to change everything for us. It, it ought to fill us with everlasting hope. No matter what situation we find ourselves in. How does this truth change how we fight for holiness in our life? How does it change how we fight against indwelling sin in our lives? And if we refuse to repent of persistent, ongoing sin in our lives, then the news of Jesus' return ought to fill us with appropriate fear. Are we ready for that? Are you ready for that? And in our fight against sin in our own lives, Sometimes we weary of that battle because we battle it every day. But here we're reminded of the hope of his return that, that, that one day that sin will be gone forever, never to be stained by it again. And if we're tired and weary of trials and suffering in the world, this is a reminder to us that this world is passing away it's here for just a moment and christ is going to bring in a whole new one that we get to read about next and when we see the lost around us our hearts ought to break at the knowledge of the christless eternity that awaits them and we ought to want them to be able to meet the return of Christ with joy and not with dread. And it ought to compel us to bring the gospel to them. And when an evil dictator rises up and invades a neighboring sovereign country with tanks and missiles and bombs and spreads fear throughout the land, causes war to break out, because of the potential of destabilization on a continent and peace evaporates and the world is held in a grip of fear of what comes next. We are reminded that the King of Kings is coming and He will make all things right. This is our hope. Not governments, not politics, not armies, not leaders of nations. Our hope is that Christ is coming back. 
I want to close with the Apostle Paul exhorting young Titus, missionary, church planter. As he exhorts Titus to be faithful, to remain faithful as he waits for the return of Christ. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Church, may we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait for the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, because He's coming. He's coming. Let's pray. As we close in prayer, if you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, as your only hope for the forgiveness of your own sin and rebellion against God, if you've not trusted in Christ alone as your only hope, then the news of His return ought to compel you to consider your prospect of coming before the God of the universe with your sins in tow without a Redeemer. Friend, God sent Jesus the first time to live the perfect life we never could, to achieve a righteousness that is foreign to us and impossible for us to earn. And to die on a cross in our place, paying the price for our sins, so that those who trust in Christ alone might be forgiven of their sins, granted His righteousness, justified before holy God, reconciled back to this God so that we can stand before Him today and tomorrow. If you find yourself considering the hopeless predicament of your position apart from Christ one day, then I beg of you, be reconciled to God this morning, not through your works, you can't do that, but through throwing yourself at the mercy of God and professing in the quietness of your heart that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died in the place of sinners for you. Repent of your sin and your self-rule and trust in Christ, His finished work, and His rule of your life for you. Father, we thank you so much for this good news. And Father, may this never grow old for us. May it never become common and ordinary to us. But may it be the hope upon which we fix our sight. And may the eyes of our faith look forward to this day 
And may we live today in light of that truth. In that sense, Father, we will live this life in worship of you as we long and wait for the return of your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.